0: Now, when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to raise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogues. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Remember from last week, we talked about Paul and Silas and Timothy and Philippi, and Philippi was a mixed experience for them. They were beaten and put in jail, but they were freed by a miracle. They had the conversion of Lydia, a prominent leading businesswoman, and also the jailer. And not only them, but their families. So they had beaten, put in jail. They had the miraculous release. And then they had the conversion of these folks mentioned. And then they took off to Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica was a different town than, than Philippi. Thessalonica was 100 miles west along the Via Ignatia. Via Ignatia is this major road that connected modern-day Albania all the way to Istanbul. It was like Interstate 40. Um, and they were 100 miles away, so it took them a while to get there. Thessalonica was a big deal. It was the second largest city in all of Greece. It was the capital of the province of Macedonia. It had about 20,000 people at that time. So there is no wonder that there was a synagogue there that there wasn't one in Philippi because the number of Jews there was was substantial as we learned last week you had to have a certain number of Jews to have a synagogue and because this was a big city they had a synagogue there and and what does Paul do what is his model of ministry well first of all he goes to the Jews he goes to the synagogue where his fellow Jews are now he made personal contact with these people. He had a lot in common with these guys. They were Jews. They had a common background. They had a common faith in the Scriptures. But Paul was somewhat different. He was the pro from Dover. He studied at the yeshiva in Jerusalem, the mothership of Judaism. And here he is now in Thessalonica talking to the people in the synagogue. So they listened. But, and he explained what the Scriptures were and he explained about Jesus. But no matter what, the results differ. Some believed and some didn't. Some Jews joined up with them and joined their missionary team, along with a great number of devout Greeks and influential women. Now, we learned last week that women were held kind of in high standard in this Greek Greek society. But the other Jews who didn't believe became very jealous, and they incited the crowds. In fact, it says they, in the ESV, wicked men of the rabble were recruited. Now, this is one instance where the King James does a little bit better. King James says, shrewd fellows of the baser sort. (laughs) I mean, that just sounds great. These guys were bad dudes, and they were recruited to riot, to go against Paul and the missionary team. Now, they didn't find Paul at Jason's house where he was staying. So they grabbed Jason and a few other of the brothers and they took them before the city council and they demanded that they pay bail. Because of this, the brothers, the Christians, got Paul and Silas out of town. They, by night, they sent him to Berea. Now, Berea was about 45 miles down that via Ignatia. That road further west. So they sent him down the road. Now that was probably a three-night journey, if they traveled at night. But what does Paul do when he gets to Berea? He does exactly the same thing he did in Thessalonica. He met with the Jews again. The pro from Dover is there. He's talking to him. He's meeting with the group, with the Jews in the synagogue. There were Greek devout God-fearing Greeks who were also at the synagogue. And he expounded the scriptures to them. And the same result happened. Some believed and some didn't. But not, it says, some of the Jews believe and not a few of the Greek women of high standing as well as men. What was the difference between the Jews in Thessalonica and the Jews in Berea? Well, verse 11 of 17 says, Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The scriptures were their ultimate authority. So you had this guy who's the pro from Dover, the guy from the Yeshiva in Jerusalem, studied under the leading teachers at the time, a Pharisee. And they said, we're going to take whatever you say and compare it to the scriptures. They held the scriptures their ultimate authority. They had a high view of the Scriptures. They were going to take the teachings of men, but they were going to compare whatever he said with the Bible. Now, the Bereans had obviously a good reason for accepting the Scriptures as they were. Now, they didn't know it at the time, but what did Jesus do after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus? He was walking with two disciples, and in in Luke 24-27 it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they didn't know that at the time, but this is what Jesus did. Jesus had the appropriate view of scripture. This was the word of God. And the Brians had that same attitude. Now, this view of scripture becomes extremely important. If you remember back to 2017, those who are here, we had a series talking about the Reformation. The Protestant Reformation of the 1500s was centered on the authority of Scripture. In fact, there was something called the material and the formal cause of the Reformation. Now, I'm not going to go into what those things mean, but the formal cause was thought to be the material cause was thought to be if the is the doctrine of justification by grace alone faith alone and and Martin Luther said if this article of justification stands the church stands if it collapses the church collapses that's the material cause of the Reformation now the formal cause is the doctrine of Scripture alone as our final authority in faith and practice without scripture we would not know that justification is precious and true accepting that faith alone or that the scriptural authority led to the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone and that was what caused the Reformation the church at that time had gone downhill they had moved away from the author- absolute authority of Scripture and they added to it tradition and popolo decrees and church councils and they all made them equal with Scripture and the whole focus of the Reformation was to get back to saying our authority is Scripture alone. Kevin DeYoung, by the way, who wrote this book, Taking God's Word, which was on the pastor's bookshelf, I recommend everybody read this. It's short; you can get through it in, in a day or two. But he says, whatever else you may disagree as on, as Catholics or liberals or evangelicals, we should all at least agree that it is our view of Scripture and authority that divides us. This is the fundamental thing that divides us from liberals versus Catholics is our view of what we hold about Scripture. So, what is our view of Scripture? What is our absolute authority here at River Valley Community Church. Now, if you take your bulletins, look in your bulletin, and it says right there on the first part of the second page, it says, We believe. This is a, our statement of faith. La- Does anybody know what last week's statement of faith said? Well, I'm going to tell you. It said it was on the Bible. So this is what we believe as River Valley Community Church about the Bible, it says. The scripture of the Old and New Testaments were given by inspiration of God and are God's words to us. While they were written by human authors, it was done so under the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and and authoritative rule of all knowledge, faith, and obedience. The Bible reveals all we need to know about God, life, and how to follow Him. As such, we believe that the Sunday morning service should be built and focused on the Bible. We sing the word. We pray the word. We read the word. We preach the word. And we respond to the word. That's what we believe here about the Bible as our ultimate authority. Again, Kevin DeYoung in his book says, We need the revelation of God to know God and the only sure, saving, final, perfect Revelation of God is found in scripture the reason for revelation is that we might know God's mercy and be saved Without scripture. We cannot know the love of God now We have the general revelation of God. We see God's Ultimate power and in, in creation and the world around us God's revealed himself to us But we don't know about his saving grace except through the Word of God it becomes crucial in that regard You know, there's a lot of acronyms that we use in Christianity that help us memorize things or help us know things. One acronym I haven't heard was revealed in this book, and it's called SCAN. Now, SCAN was a group that investigated child abuse, as far as I'm concerned, here in Fort Smith. But it also stands for, for Sufficiency, Clarity, Authority, and Necessity. So the sufficiency of Scripture is Scripture contains everything we need for knowledge of salvation, godly living. We don't need any new revelation from heaven. Clarity. The saving message of Jesus Christ is plainly taught in the Scriptures. And, we can, and it can be understood by all who have ears to hear it. We don't need any official magisterium to tell us what the Bible means. Authority. The last word always goes to the Word of God. We must never allow the teachings of science, of human experience, or of church councils to take precedence over Scripture. Necessity. General general revelation is not enough to save us. We cannot know God's saving by means of personal experience or human reason. We need God's Word to tell us how to live, who Christ is, and how to be saved. In essence, in summary, God's Word is final, God's Word is understandable, God's Word is necessary, God's Word is enough. J.I. Packer, a theologian who died just last year, in his Fundamentalism in the Word of God says, there are no words of God spoken to us at all today except the words of Scripture. So when somebody says, God told me to do this, my response is usually chapter and verse. B.B. Warfield, the last of the great um, Princeton theologians, he died in 1921, said, the Bible is the word of God in such a way that when the Bible speaks... God speaks. This was the attitude of the Bereans. Now, reading the comparison between those Christian or those Jews in Thessalonica and those Jews in Berea, you tend to think down on those Jews in Thessalonica. But here's what Paul says about them. In 1 Thessalonians 2:13, he says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you who believers. So they had, even though they didn't accept it like the the Bereans, they did know that what they were saying was the word of God. So, the Jews that caused all those troubles in Thessalonica now were so juiced up. They traveled the 45 miles to Berea to cause trouble there. Now, that wasn't just getting your car and driving down the highway. That was 45 miles, which was a three-day journey. They really had it in for Paul and his missionary team. What do you think the message was that caused them to be so riled up? What caused them to, want to be so jealous and to be so intent on upsetting their ministry? Well, this is the message they had. It says right in chapter 17, verse 2 and 3, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, is the Messiah. Now, Paul expands upon that message in 1 Corinthians. And so, 1 Corinthians fifteen three through 8 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. This is a histor- historical reality. Jesus rose from the dead. No matter what you think, no matter who you are, you have to deal with this. This is, to me, A great Christian apologetic. And apologetic is arguments for the faith. This Jesus is an historical fact and he raised from the dead. Those people there could have asked those 500 people who were still alive if this really happened, if they really saw this. You can't refute this. No matter who you are, you have to deal with this. You can deny it to your own peril. However, I think most people don't even think about it don't even consider himself with this but to me I, i'm kind of a doubter and this is this is kind of a, a stake in the ground i've got to deal with this resurrection this was really a fact jesus rose from the dead proving his his godhood the game changer. Jesus lived a perfect life, sinless. He was tried as a criminal. He was put to a terrible death, but rose again. He defeated sin and death, and now he's in the presence of God interceding for us. Our sin... Was nailed with him on the cross. He took our place and died our penalty so that we don't have to. Not only that, his righteous life and his righteousness overall was imputed to us, was given to us, was credited to our account, was on our ledger sheet. So in God's eyes, we have Christ's righteousness. The penalty for our sin has been paid. And we have his righteousness. This is all from God's word. Which is our authority. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we can only thank you for your word. You have